We've been covering the books of the Bible, three things about it. So we're just going to do that, and then we'll have a prayer and dismiss. And so hopefully, hopefully you'll learn a little something, or just be encouraged and reminded of something. You probably have heard all this stuff in, in your lifetime. Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. Uh, at some point in time, nobody really knows when, um, they, they were split apart. Uh, but after Judah had been taken into captivity for Jeremiah's uh, 70 years, as God told him and told the people, uh, it was time to let them go back. Uh, Cyrus, as you know, issued the edict that would allow them to go back home. Uh, and that's when Ezra and Nehemiah kick in. And the years of this uh, are between 540 B.C. and 430 B.C. So it covers a little more than 100 years here. Uh, and this, during this time, you've got Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah, and those are the only four witnesses we have of this time period. But it's really good stuff. And just like they were taken away in waves, they get to go back home in waves. So wave number one is Zerubbabel. Uh, Zerubbabel, that's a great name, isn't it? I mean, you get, to, you get to say that real fast a few times. He was the one chosen by God, and he was in the line of David, by the way. And so Zerubbabel and Ezra chapters 1 through 6, uh, it's the year 535 B.C., he, uh, he goes back, and he takes 46,897 of them back home. There's a lot of people by this time who want to stay in Babylon. We don't want to go back home. We like life out here. And so they stay back there, but almost 50,000 of those people did come back. They immediately established this altar, and they put the foundation of the temple uh, down, uh, building the new one. But there's a 23-year gap where they don't do anything about this temple. And that's when Haggai comes in and says, guys, you've got you to get back into this. And so they do. They, they do push through, and they build the temple back. They observe the Passover, and they get going again. And the returnees at this point in chapter 2 and chapter 6 and chapter 10 are called all Israel. This is the Israel of God, these people who went back. Ezra then leads a second group. This is wave number 2, um, and that's in chapter 7 through 10 of Ezra, 78 years after the first one, 457 B.C. This time, nearly 2,000 people go back with him. Ezra, instead of, they've got the temple all built, but Ezra's more into the law. He is a scribe. And so he wants to put the emphasis on the law. You've got the temple now. You've got your worship set up. But let's be people who obey all the law. Let's live this and don't just, don't just celebrate it like in your presence with the temple. And the greatest problem he faces is intermarriage. That's the greatest threat to God's people at this time, intermarriage. We'll talk about that at a later time. Uh, Nehemiah then leads a group in Nehemiah chapters 1 through 7. 104 years after the initial return, he brings some people back with him. I guess he brings some people, not a whole bunch of people. It's mostly him because what he wants to do is he's heard that the wall has torn down. They don't have the wall built. They're not protected. They're not safe. And he's concerned about that. He has a passion for it. And so for 12 years he was there between 445 B.C. and 432 B.C. And he leads this great effort to get them put the wall back up. We need to have some, uh, some protection here. And despite the opposition and the distraction, he gets them focused on that wall and they knock that wall out. Or actually build that wall up, I guess. And then some point in time, Nehemiah comes back. He leaves and goes back, and then he comes back, and he leads all these other reforms 
which has a lot to do with things as they are developing. They let Tobiah, this Ammonite official, live in the temple, and he can't understand that. He kicks him out. He talks about Levites and tithing, and marriage is a problem again, and then the Sabbath. So that's the story of these two books. It's like four times coming back in over 100 years. They get people back in the city. They get the temple back, and you've got first the temple, then the law restored, and then the wall. Temple, law, wall. Memory verses. I always give you one for each book, and so here we go. This one I mentioned at Harold Baker's funeral because it seems so appropriate to him. This is Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart, notice these three things, to study the law of the Lord. He was a scribe. He wanted to know it. He's one of those professional studiers of Scripture. Study the law of God to do it. I want to understand it so I can do it. And then to teach his statutes and his rules. I want to learn it so I can do it and then teach it. And it has to be that order. You study Scripture, even if you're teaching for a Bible class, your primary responsibility is a hermeneutic of study. The primary means of studying it is obeying it. So do what it says. So I want to know what it says, I want to do it, and then I want to teach it. And that's what Ezra wanted to do. Here's Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6, his uh, verse, and it's particularly the last part. The first part kind of tells you what's going on in the book. But so we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. And here's the line that's most famous from Nehemiah. For the people had a mind to work. You put them together. How many remember when you didn't pay people to build your church buildings, the members did? Anybody remember this? Is that before everybody's time? Come on, surely. I remember this. I remember like uh, uh, the Kennett Church. Of course, I wasn't there then. When they built it, the, all the members got together and they built this thing. And Fredertown was the same way. They built those things. Uh, we now like pay experts to do it, and I get why you want to do that. Because some of the people who built in Fredertown, I'm like, I'm not sure that's going to hold up. But the idea is uh, that they all wanted to work together to do it. All right, so uh, I'm, instead of three things, since there's two books, I chose five things about both of them and then... And then this will be yours. Number one, five things about this book. It's about spiritual renewal. What it takes when you've been gone for a while, you've been vacant for a while, you've been dormant for a while, you've been a little stale in your faith. What's it take to renew your spiritual vigor and get yourself going again? What has to be involved? Now, I did a sermon not long ago from Nehemiah chapter 8, which is kind of where these are from, but this happens in Ezra once, it happens in Nehemiah once, and it happens all the way through uh, the, um, the story of God. These five elements are always in it. So if you want to be a person who says, you know what, I've grown stale, I've grown dull of hearing, I'm stuck in my spiritual life, I'm not going anywhere, how do I do this? You ask a preacher, what do I need to do to get myself jump-started again? Here's the answer biblically. Number one, you have to be in assembly. Every time there was revival, it was assembly. You can't just in the privacy of your lazy boy renew your spiritual vigor. Sorry, you can't do it. Not even out in the woods. 
right? I'm out at my campfire, I'm at deer season, and I replenish my soul. Well, you can do some of that, but the kind of revival you're wanting in Scripture, you have to be assembled with God's people, and the Word has to be presented. It has to be from the Word of God. The Word is what triggers everything. When you read this and every other text like this, the Word is what leads to praise. The Word is what leads to repentance. It tells you what you must change, you change, and you've got renewal. It's as simple as that. Do what the Word says, make yourself do it, and you've got renewal, right? So many people that say, you know, I really want to be spiritual, but I don't want to do what the Bible says. It kind of sabotages your whole effort. It's the Word that produces fellowship. I can fellowship anybody who will surround the Word like that. And obedience and joy. So, a symbol, the word has to be exalted and be the centerpiece. You repent on the basis of that word, then you confess, and then you restore that commitment. That is the quote-unquote secret of spiritual renewal from Ezra and Nehemiah. This one's going to be weird. The second one is the importance of marriage to your faith. I have Wyatt in mind for this one, so here you come. Here you go, Wyatt, right? And all you college people. It is amazing the impact of your marriage on whether you pursue passionately your faith or not. Other than your choice to put on Christ at all in baptism... Other than that one choice, nothing impacts your spiritual life more than who you marry. It is so serious. We have this scene. I want you to join me in Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10. Ezra is meeting with the people. I'm going to back up to verse 7 of Ezra 10. A proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. If anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. You either come or you're out. This is Ezra. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. Everybody. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling. Something was about to happen because of the heavy rain. So there's heavy rain. It doesn't matter. They're going to be there anyway. I'm not comfortable. It doesn't matter. I'm going to be there. They don't have air conditioning. I don't care. We've got to be there anyway, right? Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You've broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. And then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people were many, and it's a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan and, John and these other people uh, have, uh, and all supported them. 
All, all, only they opposed this. The rest of them support, uh, supported it. And then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to the fathers' houses, each of them des- designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Forced divorces. It is so serious what this does to us that we're going to dissolve your marriages. So Ezra says, this is really serious. Well, here's the funny thing. By Nehemiah chapter 13, a few years later, if you'll jump ahead to Nehemiah chapter 13, they got into it all over again. It was like, right? It's like, do we not learn anything from this? But listen, Nehemiah kind of gives you what I like about this. It's in chapter uh, 13, verse 23 of Nehemiah. He kind of says some of the reasons why this is so important. He says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah and only the language of each people. They couldn't worship because they couldn't understand the language of worship, they couldn't read scripture, they couldn't even read the words of scripture. This is why it was so important, because then all of a sudden you water it down and they're not even able to, uh, to inherit a faith from people. I confronted them, cursed them, beat some of them, pulled out their hair. Let me do that some Sunday and see if you remember that Sunday or not, right? And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you should not give your daughters to their sons, their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Remember Solomon? That makes a good one, right? We still debate, is it all that big a deal? Still debate today, is it all that big a deal? Yes, 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 it is. Because so many people are raising up kids who can't even tell in their own household if it's important, much less in the wider world. When you marry, marry someone who loves the Lord as much as you do. When you're looking for someone who's going to share your life and shape your children's lives, have them be people who love the truth as much as you do. Is that clear? Did I, is there any kind of... Okay. That is just... I'm wanting to say it that way because Ezra and Nehemiah said this is critical if we're going to pass along our faith. Number three, prayer. It's on every page of these two things. Every time somebody needs to repent, it's through prayer. But I want you to notice some of these prayers of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, if you'll join me there. Uh, as soon as I heard these words, Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king, heard that the wall wasn't, wasn't in good shape. I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the, the God of heaven. So fasting and praying was part of this. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. I love how he starts the prayer. 
Let your ear be attentive, your eyes open. Hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you, your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. He quotes God back to God in prayer. That's a really cool thing. God, you made this promise, you remember? Oh, in case you forgot, God, let me quote it to you. I know people who quote scripture and prayer, and I used to think, why are you doing that? God already knows. It's a great thing to do. And so he asked for God's blessing. Now keep that in mind. Prayer and fasting, and this prayer was repeated over and over again for several days. And that explains everything else. Chapter 2, verse 4. The king said to me, what are you requesting? He noticed he was downcast. You remember this? I see Nehemiah. You're a little bit sad about this. What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, you don't get this prayer, but he just prayed real quickly right there. Just a nice one-sentence prayer. If you're praying like this all the time, there's a lot of one-sentence prayers that are very effective. Don't try to live on one-sentence prayers, okay? Don't try to live your entire life on these one-sentence prayers. But if you have a life of prayer, those one-sentence prayers are extremely powerful at any time. Look at um, chapter 2, verse 8. And a letter to Asaph, keep of the king's forest. He gave me timber to make for all the soul and all of us. And the king granted me what I asked for the good. The hand of God was upon me. I think the reason he knows that is the prayer. Chapter 4. Verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Does that sound like love your enemies to you? When you hear Jesus pray, you need to love your enemy. That don't sound like it, but you know what? He's taking it to God, saying, God, you know what? These people are trying to obstruct your work. And, and us doing your work. And so, God, you take care of them. We're just going to continue working this. He does chapter 5, verse 19, chapter 6, verse 9, chapter 6, verse 14. These one-sentence, powerful, dynamite prayers. It's okay, right before you take a final, to throw up a one-line prayer. Especially when you've studied hard and you've prayed diligently about that before this. Number four, leadership. It's a great study in leadership to look at Nehemiah. He's a fascinating character. Ezra too, but we get more of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, here's some, just some one-liners, right? He's patient. He's ready. At one time, he gets on his horse, and he rides around the entire city looking at every section of the wall. He's not told anybody he was there yet. He's not said why he's there. He's looking around, and he's preparing for it. He's trying to figure out what's needed, and so he does this. He is prayerful, constantly praying all the way through this. He is passionate about this. This is why he left his job in Babylon to come. He is passionate about it, so passionate that his passion is visible by the king himself, and he sends him back. He's very clear makes it very clear when he says something. He's attentive to people. 
He knows there is opposition and he's ready for it. And he confronts when it's necessary. When distractions come up, he says, I've got a greater work to do than y'all trying to get me away from the city. I'm not going to come. I'm not going to come. I'm not going to let distractions distract me. And when he tells them how to treat each other, he subjects himself to the same standards as everybody else. He doesn't have a special cushiony job. That's leadership. Last thing. I don't know if, you, if, if I were to tell you, if I were to ask you, like, the difference between using songs of the church songbook and this songs of faith and praise, can you tell a difference between songs we used to sing and songs we sing now? The themes, do you notice any? Uh, I, I remember in that old songbook or uh, sacred selections, it was uh, half the songs were about heaven all the time. Nearly every page seems to have something about heaven. And at least the, the last line of a four-verse song had something to do about when I'm about to die, you know, be ready for me, and all that sort of stuff. We don't, we don't hear that so much except there's a stirring, and of course when we do that, a preacher doesn't like it, right? So what do you do about that? It's, here's the other, the other theme, mission. Our modern-day songs like we get from Caleb and we make a cappella for worship and all that stuff, there's not a lot of mission in it. There's a lot of, uh, I feel God's love and all this stuff, but I don't have that sense of mission. And do you remember how much mission there was in our old songbooks? Anybody know? I mean, it's like, where he goes, I'll follow, right? If it's over to the ocean, it's over the ocean to another place, I'll go. Or if it's just right here at home. Or what about those songs about work? I don't hear this on Caleb, right? But uh, you remember this? We'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work till Jesus comes. I mean, it's all it says. We'll work till Jesus. We'll work. Till, and I'm like, what are we doing? What exactly are we, what are you asking? I want to be a worker for the Lord. That one always confused me because it went from vineyard to kingdom. Vineyard to kingdom. And I would say kingdom and it's supposed to be vineyard. It was, anyway, so I want to be a worker for the Lord, right? And then there were those old ones like, let the lower lights be burning. It's like I'm a, that's a seafaring kind of thing. What about this one uh, from Little House in the Prairie, right? It's not from Little House in the Prairie. They sang it all the time. Bringing in the sheaves. Anybody ever brought a sheave in? It's this idea that my job... My work for God needs to be, and, and I'm singing. Every week we're singing, this is my job. I don't hear that so much anymore. It's not, it's not quite like that in the newer songs, and it, it's not a criticism. I just find that this is the greatest theme of Ezra and Nehemiah. We've got work for God to do, and we need to be about it. And there are so many different uh, lessons you could draw from this, like all kinds of people were involved in the work. He asked everybody to participate. Everybody had a section. All, it, it doesn't matter what you do or what role you play, we've all got to work. And in fact, if you're not one who likes to build the wall, here, hold a gun instead. Or uh, probably didn't have guns, maybe like weapon of some kind. You hold the weapon and I'll, you know, concrete this rock in here. Um, everyone had a job to do. Some were small. Some could do more. It didn't matter. Everybody had something to do in building this wall. Even the kids did. Uh, they all work together. This is my favorite line, like in some of this. Next to him, 
Next to him was it. Next to him was this. Next to him was this. Next to him was it. It was just like a line of people building this wall. Everybody working next to each other. And he made sure that they worked near their own homes. You know why, right? I'm really concerned that this wall be strong back behind my house. If there's a weakness, it ain't going to be in my house, right? It might be over there at Terry's, but it's not at my house, right? It was going to be strong. So I, I, I want you to be in your own homes working to protect your own home. Uh, they had assigned sections, and then they might do more. There were some people who said, hey, give me more, give me more, give me more. And there were others who said, I don't even want to do this. I'd rather be, you know, something else. So there were, don't, don't think that this was a magical time where everybody loved doing the work. Now, there were some people, like today, who would not show up. There were some like that. But they had a zeal. He said over and over again that a good attitude about their work. They knew what they were doing. They committed themselves because the same goal, this wall is important to all of us. Let's do this. They were willing to put their own lives on hold to do this. Yeah, I've got work to do in my house. I've got to can green beans. I've got to do all this stuff. But we're going to put this on hold for a few days until this section is done. They realized it was God's work. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 16. They worked even though some of their neighbors refused to. Don't show up to the work and go, Where's everybody else? Don't get hung up on numbers either. Do the work. And there was opposition. There were people all around them. Other nations watching other communities watching who didn't want them building this wall and they did everything, everything they could to interfere and discourage them. Sometimes the work is an obligation that you don't want to do. You're not always real enthused about the work, but you do it anyway because it's what we're supposed to. Here's a reality is that uh, God's work depends on volunteers. This is really frustrating sometimes and it gets to a point where we want to specialize in everything. We want to hire it out done. And we'd rather have somebody, a professional, come in and do it. And it, it's like God says, the, work, the real work of the kingdom needs to be done by people who are inwardly motivated. And they're volunteers. Many God-honoring and important tasks do not seem to be so to us. You might wonder sometimes... What difference does this particular task mean? It doesn't seem like it's all that big a deal, and it certainly doesn't get a picture on the slideshow before church on Sunday morning. So why is it so important? It just is. God doesn't forget a single thing done in His name. Isn't that right from Hebrews? And some people will read all these lists of Ezra and Nehemiah and go, why do I need to know these weird people's names? You don't need to know them. But God said, they were my people who did the work, and I want their name listed. I don't care if you know what they did. God knows. And then finally, we're to honor those who work among us in whatever task they do. 
I know that there was a, a Becky Mulholland. I'm trying to think of some of them. Terry Stidman. Uh, I'm going to fail at this. Judy Ramsey. No one knows this. Their names are not listed anywhere. But Friday they were up here serving a funeral meal. And you might not think that's all that big a deal, but if you heard that family during that time, it was a big deal, and it's something this church needs to do, and it is so incredibly important. And I'm thankful we have people who'll do it. And I noticed, well, there was Judy Ramsey. I think I know why she thinks it's important. In fact, as I looked at most of them, I, I think most of them probably have been a beneficiary of that meal before. And they know just how critical a time it is, significant a work it is. And I wish we could see that about all that the church does, even the little stuff you don't think much about. If I were to put this all concisely, as we wrap this up, I would say the truth is reflected, as reflected in these two books is about pursuing spiritual maturity requires a tremendous respect for the Word and prayer and good leadership and a willingness to work the work of God. When I look at the New Covenant, I would say the, compa- the, the comparison would be First and Second Timothy where he says, let me, sh- let me tell you how the household of God should be. It should be full of sound doctrine. You kick out anything that distracts from pursuing the Word of God as I've delivered it to you, and you establish good godly leadership. You've got elders and deacons who want to work and do the work of God. And I want you to pray, and I want you to have a whole community of people who are engaged in good works which God prepared in advance for them to do. Sounds a lot like Ezra and Nehemiah. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for those old messages from your old covenant. We're grateful for these stories and these characters. They're true, and we know they're there for our learning, for our encouragement, for us to look at and go, I know we're in a new covenant, but some things didn't change. And one of those is, Father, this need to rely on your word and to do your work in our lives. And I pray, Father, that we will do that. I pray that you bless the leaders of this church, bless those future leaders who are developing even right now the right kind of disposition to take those roles in the future. And I pray, Father, that we will work. We will work till Jesus comes. That we will do our share that we will look at the things that you ask us to do and be willing volunteers to engage in these things, to embrace them with passion and know that they are important, dear to your heart. And may you make them all work to the maximum benefit of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.